Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Market Watch podcast by Amplify Live, where you can access the latest market insights with me, Anthony Chung, the head of market analysis, and joined by our head of trading, Piers Curran, getting you up to speed on what mattered in markets this week. So, hello, and welcome to episode 26 of the Market Watch, where I'm joined by our head of trading, Piers Curran, as we go over some of the main events in markets this week and also listen to the community about what they want to hear about. And there's two things that have been brought up, which we're going to cover and hopefully give a bit of insight into. And one is this ongoing somewhat of a disconnect that you might have been observing in US equity markets this week. And that is of underperformance in the Russell 2000, but mega cap tech still somewhat outperforming and thus um, equity markets still sitting at around record high territory albeit just off the top, but still right up there at the moment. So what does that mean? Is that healthy? Is that a negative development? We'll discuss. We're also going to have a look at the fiscal situation in the US. We've gone through an unprecedented period through the pandemic, huge amounts of government spending. Does that make a difference for how the Fed are going to react in their past and normalization in their policy? So we'll tackle that. And then third point, we're going to have a look at lots of things going on in the UK, of course, We had inflation data particularly high earlier this week. We've had commentary out of Bank of England officials, which have been leaning in a more hawkish direction. And then, of course, the UK does the final unlocking of the restrictions on Monday, on the 19th of the month. So they're the three things we're going to cover, Piers. But overall, before we get going, the, uh, the dream is over. We didn't quite make it. We didn't quite make it. And, uh, it, that's sad but you know what proud, proud of them you know we, we've we've uh made it further than we have for over 50 years so you know you've got to have some um got to take the positives and we've got the world cup next year so i think it's a good stepping stone yeah i mean of course when you make it to the final obviously you want to deliver it's almost like the worst finishing place is the losing finalist in many ways because you're so close 
but um so i think it's going to take a while for to kind of get over that but um yeah really a, a great great tournament um you know big step forward exciting for for the years to come yeah and uh love will always win yes it will for those who follow um certain football players you'll know what that means but absolutely, absolutely that is 100% the way so straight into it then peers let's get down to it because there's three things that I definitely want to to cover and and let's start off with that first one the disconnect in in what people often refer to as market internals so when you start kind of taking the lid off the kind of top level the equity market you can break it down right and it gives you different signals perhaps of the health of the economy and and people's perceptions from an investing perspective so what's your take at the moment because we are up at record territory in the S&P and the the Nasdaq 100 but there's an increasing number of companies who are hitting new lows at the moment and yet that's somewhat contradictory to what I've just said so how does that work yeah it's um obviously a the the stock market you know the big general thing um as people call it the stock market i mean that if you think about it that in, in incorporates every single publicly listed company in the economic system um and that's that's right from the companies that listed back in the sort of 1890s i mean the first stock index just as a random bit of trivia for you well actually maybe do you know i don't know if we've ever talked about this when was the first ever stock index created i was gonna say what what year what year what what uh, index central banks what Um, year and what index or what decade? I'll give you. I'll give you some leeway. And what was the first ever index? I don't know. The Dow back in nineteen twenty. Okay, you get you get half marks. So the Dow is correct. It's eighteen nineties. Okay. Um, pub quiz question there for you. But um, <laughs> but but. So obviously you've got companies that are listed back then, right? And there's still, some of them are still around, actually not many of them thinking about it. But um, but my point is you've, you've also got people, uh, sorry, companies that have IPO'd this year, okay? But they're all bunged into this thing called the stock market. And and I think obviously the media latch onto the big indices. So that's generally the, the, the large cap stocks. So when you're looking at the FTSE 100 or the S&P 500 or the DAX or whatever it is, the Nikkei 225, these are the largest companies in that economy. Um, so most of the media focus most of their attention on those things. And those indices, yeah, they get their gangbusters, you know, new all-time highs still. Um, but then there are certain indices which then drill down into the you know different categories, and, and it's not just sectors. So like the Nasdaq, obviously, so that's a tech sector index. So you'll, you'll have indices for different sectors, but then also you'll have indices that are looking at different um, market caps. And so when you're going to the lower end of the spectrum in terms of market cap, so you'll have the, like the Russell 2000 in the US, or like here in the UK, there's an AIM um listing okay that's the aim stock market is which is for the super small cap um kind of end of the spectrum and and that's where you're seeing much more variable performance right so whilst the s p yet new all-time highs new all-time highs every week bang 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 um under the bonnet of this massive stock market thing you've got pockets where companies are struggling and some of those um smaller cap companies are a little bit more vulnerable 
to you know these massive kind of dislocations in the economic system and so there are stats there you've got to be a bit careful though because um some of the stats were that actually last week you had more u.s companies making all-time lows than you had making all-time highs even though the stock market as in the S&P 500, is on an all-time high. And so, but then you've got to realize that some of those companies that are making all-time lows, they only listed this year or like last year, right? So they've, they've hardly been around. And maybe when they IPO'd, fine, their share price came out super bullish and, and then COVID hit and fine, they might have been in a sector that was particularly vulnerable to that. And so of course they're making all-time lows, but they've only been around for a 18 months six months whatever it might be so i think there's a little bit of um you got to be a bit careful how to read some of these stats is what I'm yeah saying. and then when it comes to then say mega cap and predominantly tech i mean can those can those stocks ever go substantially lower um I mean, because well, I'm saying that as in they're obviously sensitive, as we've discussed before, to different rate environments. Um, but yeah. just given the magnitude of the size now, I mean, both you and I, we haven't seen a marketplace where I, I kind of, you know, to give you a visual cue, thinking of a stock market like a pie chart, and you can see all the segments of the pie, and it's just dominated by such a small number of companies i.e. Yeah. your Facebooks, your Alphabets, your Amazons, and so forth. Yeah, is it, is it this? This can't be a healthy direction, surely. Well, I think that firstly, the you know when you start getting into the territory where people, you know, and large amounts of people start to think that certain assets can't go down in value, then you're then you're in dangerous territory, right? But I'd say there's probably I'm going to say there's only two possible scenarios that I can currently think of off the top of my head that would lead to those big tech stocks properly dropping in value. And that's because they've, they've become this kind of sweet spot where they're so massive that actually now they're safe, you know, from an investor's point of view they're safe and on top of that obviously they're geared towards you know the the way this global economy is evolving where it's you know all about you know take take your i don't know take your whichever one take amazon probably the best example at the moment given covid but you know everyone's shopping is going online so that trend hasn't ended no way especially when you're thinking about the emerging market world that trend has definitely not finished growing right so companies that are geared for tapping into that growth well of course that these are growth stocks right and most likely their growth hasn't ended yet um so they're their perfect sweet spot where they're a safe haven in a way i, I still feel very dirty <laughs> calling tech stocks safe havens but anyway um, but they do but offer bonds now that remember we talked before a few months yeah. back that eight-part bond offering out of amazon yeah gobbled up yeah <laughs> yeah well look here are my two scenarios yeah and actually one of them feeds into what we're going to talk about with regards to the fed and are they trapped and, and can they actually follow a normal sort of monetary policy cycle or not so this will tie in you'll see later but um number so 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 not firstly the big tech stocks 
the big risk for them in the in the next few years, and this isn't a short term thing, it's a medium term thing, is regulation. It's antitrust regulation, and they've become too big and they've become too powerful. And it's not healthy. Well, firstly, the governments don't like that, but actually it's not healthy for an economy and an economic system if you've got certain players that have become too large and they stifle innovation and growth um, and entrepreneurialism because the barrier to entry to compete is so monstrously high. It's just that the current antitrust um, sort of structure and system isn't set up for these types of um, Goliath companies. And that's because in the past, the idea about competition is that you know, the old school way of thinking about it was if someone, if a company won so much market share that they controlled that market, they could then control price and they would, that would lead to prices rising to the detriment of the consumer. But actually what we have here is the exact opposite where these tech giants, yes, they're controlling the market, but they're not driving prices up for consumers, quite the opposite. They're, they're driving prices down. And so it's very difficult for the current um, sort of antitrust law system to, to kind of deal with this. And so you're going to need massive structural reform of those laws before then we can set about actually curbing the power that these Goliaths have created. And, and you know, because in the end, if, if the tech firms continue to become ever more powerful, then it will be to the detriment of the entire economic system over the medium to long term. So we're probably at the, 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 the beginning of this phase, which might take a decade for all of this to play out and for these massive tech firms to start getting curbed. But you never know, right? And the speed and the aggressive nature by which the US government, let's say, go after Amazon and Facebook, um, that speed might, it might speed up. Right. And when we go through the political cycle, you know, it might become, you know, a populist, you know, policy to, to hit the campaign trail with. And so it might get accelerated, in which case these tech stocks might be vulnerable. It might be a simple example might be Amazon. You've got to split, you know, AWS has to now become a separate company. So forced to, to kind of split. And, and so that that's one way. OK, but then what ties in with the Fed and all the rest of it? is the other way that tech stocks go down is if everything goes down and we have a major crisis. And there is a risk of that. Well, there's always a risk of that, right? But normally it's negligible. And there are certain quarters that are now suggesting that the risk of a monster major crisis is actually inching higher. Right. So that, let, let's talk about that then, because... Everyone loves speculating about the next big downfall. And so yeah. I guess this kind of feeds into the, the second question that we had, which is the, uh, the kind of unusual situation we find ourselves in, having had to have dealt with a global pandemic in terms of the fiscal situation and what's happened here. And this is a, a, this is a global theme. This isn't just specific to the US. Um, although the US is monstrous in size of response to the, the crisis we've confronted. But what does this mean for the Fed? Because raising rates and heading down that path comes with implications. Um, and so how do you kind of see that playing out when we're trying to really determine market direction from ultimately what the Fed are going to do? Um, are they, is this time different from the previous, I guess, is the question. 
Um, I think that, I mean, ultimately, I definitely wouldn't want to be Powell. I definitely wouldn't want to be the Fed. I think what they've done in the last 18 months, whilst it's been remarkable and off the scale and has certainly had a positive impact to kind of reduce the damage of the crisis, for sure. But what's behind us is the easy stuff. You know, it's, it's very easy as a central bank to... Uh, get the kind of stimulus bat out big time when we got a crisis. I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer, right? But there, there's no, there's no, uh, it's a very obvious direction of travel. I think what's coming in the next 18 months is a, is the opposite. It, it's, it, we could, there's strong arguments that you could go either way, right? So the Fed could start hiking and tightening, real strong arguments for that. But then equally and oppositely, there's really strong arguments for not doing it. And so here you have that di- the ultimate dilemma and the Fed have got to, a tr- you know, they've got to tread that tightrope, if you like, uh, and try and get it bang on. Now, so it is a complicated narrative, this, but because on the one hand, in the short term, you've got this inflation spike and transitory, right? It's transitory, transitory, transitory. Fine. And I still believe that, right? Um, and if inflation... I don't know. It's hard to know when inflation's so high at the moment. We look under the bonnet of that, and we're still seeing the numbers that actually that there's certain you know very there's a very select few components that are driving the majority of that inflation spike. And those components, and we've talked about this, like used cars and um, you know and so on, right? And so you know that that should come out of the system and this microchip supply problem will will resolve itself and so right fine inflation is going to drop but will it drop to three percent will it drop to two will it drop to four i mean obviously there's uncertainty there and i don't really care so much i mean if it drops so if it only drops to three percent so perhaps less of a drop so it's less transitory maybe than some are thinking then it's still fine you know three percent with their average inflation sort of targeting model now isn't necessarily going to lead to the fed to get their foot on the accelerator I don't think in in like the next few months, um, but that's like near term. Um, the uh, the ultimate problem is not this short term inflationary spike. The ultimate problem is really trying to determine what actually happens because we've got because central bankers are starting to get criticised because we've got a cocktail of scenarios that are freaking and panicking people to say hang on this is like the end of the 60s going into the 1970s all over again and aren't we about to commit exactly the same criminal mistake we did back then because so what happened so uh, what i mean is these cocktail of factors are things like incredibly strong economic growth okay now yes fine that's a rebound from a crisis but so what right now incredibly strong economic growth Whilst interest rates are at zero, whilst quantitative easing is at its absolute max, whilst fiscal stimulus is still at its absolute max. In the cases of places like the US, you've got a super tight jobs market now. Plus, you've got very high levels of personal savings. So kind of that one argument is kind of putting all those together and going, you know what happens when all of those come together, right? And that is you get a sustained inflation 
drive higher. All right. So forget about this temporary spike we've got because of the, the COVID timing from last year. It's more about the second half. It's maybe even more about quarter four, to be honest. Do all these factors come together and powerfully and meaningfully drive inflation higher? That, that's the real risk, I would say. I'm just trying to cast my mind back to think about the, the 2009-10 period when we had easing and then well, zero rates and then following the period thereafter, QE. I guess it's the fact that it's just the acceleration of the factors you mentioned. It's, it's everything's on hyperspeed given the, the speed of the drop and the speed of the recovery, which makes the issue all the more acute. Yeah. And what's different now is that, like, think about 2009. You had massive QE, you had interest rates at zero, and you had fiscal stimulus, right? You did not have a super tight jobs market. You did not have really strong economic growth. And you did not have very high levels of personal savings. Mm. You didn't have those things. So it didn't so what- end up as being inflationary so what what's the what's the counter arguments to that then what's the other side of that well so well the the the, okay well so the other side to that direct argument there's kind of a a secondary sort of topic we need to go on to but the i mean the counter argument to that precisely is that actually um growth rates slow when the governments of this world remove the punch bowl so they they start to halt you know halt their fiscal stimulus and all of these kind of support mechanisms that have kept people alive and i mean companies and people you know in terms of their jobs and salaries you know when they get removed only then will we truly see you know the damage done by the storm if you like and and so there could be at the back end of this year quite a sharp drop up you could even like another recession in fact when stimulus is removed i mean fiscal stimulus now throughout this entire period the fed's got to be there well and central banks their kind of job is to is to be the support act and and kind of make sure that the the ship is steady um so i yeah just by the nature of the risks at the end of this year um, when fiscal stimulus gets removed, it's going to ha- well. It's a risky game for central banks to start tightening before the end of this year. And I know we'll talk about the Bank of England in a minute, but there's calls now for them to tighten before the end of this year. But I think that's a bit reckless um, given the uncertainties. Um, yeah, so that's so the direct. Well, let's yeah. let's move on that that direction. Let's talk about the BOE because there has been a distinct change in rhetoric, almost from the top. Um, yeah. Not not the governor Bailey himself, but the two deputy governors uh, came out this week and spoke. And the first one who spoke was a, a chap called Dave Ramsden, and he said that inflation may peak at double the targeted level in the UK. Targeted level being two percent. So this came hours after he made these comments that inflation came in for June year in year two point five percent above the expected two point one. So it was quite a bit higher than expected. But before we panic about inflation too much there, I must stress, they said pandemic idiosyncrasies is the new word that they like to roll out, which is these pandemic-induced yeah. temporary factors. So second, second-hand cars, as we say, not used cars, that, that were 
explainable for the inflation kind of temporary <laughs> element to inflation pressure. But the point is, he said that he estimated the reading may peak at around 4%. Now, the Bank of England, in their most recent meeting, we're talking about it might go to 3%, maybe briefly above 3%. He's now chucking out 4%. And that kind of raised a few eyebrows. But if you look where Ramsden sits on the <laughs> spectrum between hawks and doves, the chief economist, Andy Haldane, is gone now. And he was the outlying hawk who dissented at every meeting. He was always the one who said, look, we should be packing in this QE. It's not, it's not good for the situation. So the fact that he's gone, Ramsden is now the next in line on the hawkish spectrum, albeit he's nowhere near quite as extreme as Haldane was. So you kind of think, yeah, okay, Ramsden, if anyone's going to say that type of thing, it's going to be him. The problem is Michael Saunders, the other deputy governor came out. Now he sits on the other end of the spectrum. He's basically a dove. And he comes out and says, well, if the economy continues on the current path, we're going to need to begin tapering bond purchases fairly soon. So in a typical nuanced central bank communication, fairly soon uh, means that people generally draw assumptions that that's, that's a lot quicker than we thought before. And actually, the pound did rally on the back of that, uh, that comment yesterday. So yeah, just interested to get your, your take on that, because inflation... Um, I don't think the inflation data this week was particularly surprising at all. It was way higher than expected, but we're expecting, as you said, that direction of travel for the foreseeable in the UK. We're kind of lagging a little bit on that way in terms of the metrics we're seeing in the US at the moment. But it's more the fact that the center ground, the needle seems to be shifting a little bit here now from the BOE in a more hawkish direction. Um, so thoughts on that first before we kind of talk about covid yeah, I mean, the, my thoughts are that core inflation in the UK for June was 2.3%. Core inflation for June in the US was 4.5%. You know, so, so we're, we don't, well, don't yet have anything like the inflation spike that the US is seeing. That's number one. Um, but then, yeah, number two, I mean, look, they, the Bank of England got kind of a, got, got nailed by this kind of report that there was a um the house of lords economic affairs committee issued a report and and the thing about and this is why this has hit the press by the way and because who's in that committee the house of lords committee is a, is a certain person called mervyn king oh yeah who, who you may have heard of the ex i bet he i mean uh, I, I did the see Bank the headline yeah i did see the headline but i haven't read it but i can only imagine what you're about to say what he's got to think about this I mean, it's scathing, though, because they're, so the head, so Lord Michael Forsyth, he's the head of the Economic Affairs Committee. He said, and I quote, um, the Bank of England has become addicted to quantitative easing, using it as the answer to all the country's economic problems um, and facing few questions despite its eye-watering size. Um, and then he went further, and this is quite radical and ties into something I wanted to talk about. The report flagged that the Bank of England was widely perceived to be using quantitative easing to finance the government's deficit during the pandemic. So this report slapped on the, the Bank of England governor's desk and it's like, whoa, okay, this, this, is, this isn't nothing, this report, given who's written it. And then the government, of course, 
uh, are also now going to be questioning, hang on a minute, all right, if, if these guys are thinking that, hang on, Bank of England, what, what are you doing? Are, are you kind of going off piste a little bit here and should you kind of be reined in? So there's all of this has suddenly come out of the woodwork. Um, and, you know, so that, and, and that's because these people are panicking about, and they're old, these people, you know, age-wise. <laughs> And they remember that, I, as I, I'll go back to it again, the end of the 1960s, the start of the 1970s, we had the same situation. We didn't hike rates and inflation got out of control and the 70s were a disaster. The decade was a disaster as a result of this inflation problem. Okay, so they're kind of panicking about that. And they've got some argument. Yeah, I think some of it's right. I think the economy is a way different place now than it was 50 years ago. So uh, there's definitely differences as well. But to, to, to suggest that the central bank is essentially funding the government's deficit. Now, that's a, that's a massive comment. But come um, on, the, Lord, the Lords are politicians playing a political game, yeah. right? For, for any American listeners of the podcast, you need to understand that there's... I mean, it's a very archaic structure, I guess, like understanding the, the, the format between a lower and upper house and the Lord's position. But there's, there's clearly some political gamesmanship going on here. Yeah, for sure. But, that, you know, there's no smoke without fire, right? And my kind of final part I wanted to talk about was this idea about what happens like in 2022, because we've got, governments with massive deficits uh, massive debt piles and the only way to fund that is to borrow more money obviously right so they're gonna that's absolutely ha gonna have to happen they'll have to issue more bonds there is a wider risk that people like people like ray dalio are starting to flag that next year you, there's going to be such a massive supply of new bonds as governments try to borrow more money to fund this deficit and debt that the supply is going to have to go so high that the, it, the demand won't be able to match it. And you're going to be left with this scenario where the, the, the price of this debt collapses. Therefore, the, the yields on this debt spikes. And that's, that's interest rates then going through the roof, right? And the whole point around the Fed, and can they follow a normal monetary policy cycle? Here's that risk. If, they if, the, if the demand supply dynamic in the government debt market goes to that extreme, like people like Ray Dalio are suggesting, then the only solution really, certainly in the near term is the Fed continue with their QE program, maybe even have to increase the QE program to actually mop up this excess supply of government debt that's coming onto the market. And that might lead to what we call monetary inflation. Um, so these are those kind of big risks that now COVID's almost in our rearview mirror. It's not, and then that's definitely not something we should be relaxed about. But people in countries where the vaccine rollout's been really effective feel like it's in the rearview mirror, and they're starting to look at some of these bigger aftermath risks that might come in 2022. And those risks that you were highlighting there on that last point circle back then to the vulnerability of tech that you were making the point earlier. Yes. So if we get a major crisis, like if, if COVID hangover crisis, that's, that's massive and maybe larger than the first one. Um, and if it is the end of this, let's call it a 50 or 40 to 50 year debt cycle, 
it could be that this is the end of the debt cycle, in which case we've got a potential depression starting next year. Come on, we can't end the pod like that. <laughs> so guys, it's the weekend, up, for God's sake, Piers. It's Friday. Bags, go and find a cave. Come on, I know, I know that you're off next week and you're going to some cave in Cornwall for, for a staycation. That doesn't mean you need to scaremonger the rest of us. Look, I'm normally positive and bullish, but you know, every now and then I got to throw out uh, an alternative view. <laughs> so that's what I'm doing. I don't know. As soon as you started talking that through, it all makes logical sense as a scenario. Yeah. I can't help but feel that at, at any sign that these things are happen are going to happen or may happen, that the path to the the path of the Fed would just be to support the economy through this period, and so. Again, it's cushioned. We'd never, I, I can't see that happening. I find it very difficult to believe that, just given the way of which central banks have now almost backed themselves into a corner where they yeah. have to act in these ways now. They've right. kind of byproduct of the last two crises that we've had. We, yeah, the system is addicted to the drug of stimulus. It is. Yeah. And but, but you know, fact. do you know what? I'm an addict, I feel great. And so right. keep giving me the drugs. <laughs> yeah, but at some point, if it gets to the extreme point where literally the Fed are printing money simply yeah. because there's an excess supply of US government bonds, that's when you get to the cliff edge. And if the system loses confidence, then you go over the cliff. And it's just something to chew on over the weekend. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a, a definite a scenario here. It's just that the noises around this narrative are increasing that's all i'm saying and on that note we'll wish everyone a lovely weekend enjoy the sun it's going to be a, a scorching weekend here in the uk so uh yeah on yeah. that bright spot we'll um we'll end it so okay. thanks very much Piers. enjoy your week off cheers have a good one cheers everyone take care Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 